Can you remember your first out-of-home experience? you remember the first place you moved into on your own? Um, can you remember that first apartment, that first house, that first town home? Um, I remember, for me, it was the summer of 1998. Uh, I finally got to move off campus as a, getting ready to be a college junior, uh, and myself with two roommates moved into a place that when I drive by it today, I'm, I mean, it was in a pretty scary part of town. We just found like the cheapest thing possible with three bedrooms, and we moved into a little apartment on 220 McConville Road in Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, and we had three rules. I don't know if when you moved into your p- first place, you had roommates, if you had rules. I don't know if you have house rules at your place now, but we had, we had three rules. Um, myself, a wide receiver who played on our team who um, was from Baltimore, and then one of our tight ends who was from Los Angeles. The three of us moved to an apartment together, and here were the rules. Number one, you weren't allowed to eat each other's food. So if you didn't buy it, you were not allowed to eat it because we were living on a minimal budget. We were always hungry. So one of our rules was, listen, if it's not yours, don't eat it. Um, our second rule was my, my roommate from Baltimore had a snake. Um, that was his pet. Had a big, like, ball python in his room. Um, that was kind of fun as a show and tell thing uh, when people came over. But we had a rule that you weren't allowed to take the snake out of the cage. His name was Oscar. So you weren't allowed to take Oscar out of the cage unless Brian was there because Pete and I would like hold Oscar for a minute. And then it's like as soon as he would flick his tongue, we would throw him. And he was afraid we were going to hurt the snakes. It scared us. So um, don't eat each other's food. Uh, don't take the snake out of its cage if Brian wasn't there. And the third thing, none of our um, bedrooms had locks on the doors. So our third rule was um, if the doors lock, if the door shut, don't open it because people might be inside praying or something. Um, so like that, those were our those were our college rules at the age of twenty when I had my first place um, by my by myself. And we are getting ready as a church to move into our first kind of permanent home. So I thought it would be cool this morning to lay down some house rules, not not rules that we need to follow in the house, but what would the Lord want our new building to become? And if you have your Bible, I want to show you something in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 is where we are. Usher's going to come down the aisle if you need a Bible. Uh, You can fire up our, our whole message on your Journey Church app um, on the top of your sermon notes, you can grab out of your bulletin. It might say First Kings or Second Kings on your app. It might say Second Kings. It's actually First Kings. That's a typo on me. Forgive me. But in First Kings chapter eight, we find out how to move into your first building. And here's how you need to understand that I stumbled upon what I learned today. Um, you need to know this about me. Um, I love the Bible. I mean, I love it. Uh, I love it. I believe it's from God. Um, I believe every word of it. I wish I could memorize every word of it. I believe the Bible holds the answers to almost every question in life. In the, the questions that aren't answered in the Bible, I believe there's direction given towards faith and towards love that help us even in the unknown kind of lean towards God. Uh, I'm kind of old school. You know, I, I, I like, a, like a real Bible that I can hold in my hands and preach out of and read. I've not gone to the computer or the phone Bible yet. I know a lot of you have, and I'm glad, but I haven't caught up. I'm kind of like an old grandpa trapped in an old soul. I love seeing the kids. Every time I see our kids on the stage, I feel like the Lord speaks into my heart that future pastors of Journey Church International are up there, future, future worship pastors of Journey Church 
International are up there. Um, future kids workers and youth pastors are up there. Future missionaries from our church are up there. Um, I really love that, but it, you know, I'm kind of old school. It's like, man, their music's like really loud. And it's like, oh my gosh, if I become my grandpa, um, that the, the younger generation listens to loud music. And when they did that little, you know, thing, I'm like, are we allowed to teach that in church? Like, is that... Isn't that provocative? Um, then they dabbed, and it was like, man, this is, this is kind of awesome, but it's church. But, I, you know, I'm kind of old school, so I, I like to hold my Bible, um, and I like to read my Bible. I, I read it every day, and you need to understand a few verses that shape just my worldview um, as a person. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 are two of my favorite verses. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So anytime someone asks me a question about anything, anytime I have a question about anything, I always look to the Bible first, Genesis through Revelation, to try to find an answer. One of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 10.6. A lot of people in today's church really only read the New Testament because they don't understand the Old Testament. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says these things, speaking of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis through Malachi said all those things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Paul said you should study the Old Testament because everything you go through in life is probably there and some of those things will be an example of what you should do or what you shouldn't do. So learn the Bible because it'll give you a lot of truth. So as we begin to move towards this Sunday, I ask this question. Is there any place in the Bible where they moved in their first building? Like, is there any place in the Bible where a church moved from doing set up and tear down every week to moving into its first building that I can learn from as an example to me? And there was. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we see the nation of Israel, after nearly 100 years in the land, finally move into a building. Now, we've been at Summit Lakes for five years. It's been a long five years for some of our people to help with set up and tear down I'm glad we haven't been here a hundred years. That's how long the Israelites were in the land. Um, Before the hundred years in the land, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. They did set up every day, every day, set up and tear down for 40 years. Then they got into the land and their church looked very much like our pipe and drape. It was poles and curtains and stands and they would set up the church and they would take it down. They'd set it up and they'd take it down, move it to other places. But finally they built a building and it was time to go from being a portable church to a permanent church. And as Solomon stepped in to say, okay, here's the temple and here's what we want the temple to become, he prayed this prayer that shows us what our heart should be towards the building that we're moving into. And it's incredible. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 22. We're just going to kind of slowly walk our way through this text today. It says, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You've kept your promise to your servant David, my father, with your mouth you've promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, and now it's here today. Can we stop and pray real quick? Father, thank you for the promise and the call for Journey Church International that you called many years ago, and now today with your hand you've established with a building. Help us to see the heart attitude we should have as we approach moving from where we are to do ministry in a building that our lives might better know you and that our community might better see you and us. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Solomon in this prayer, he asked God to do seven things for this building that they're moving into. Solomon says, God, you you promised to do a work for us. 
Today you've completed that work for us, and, and God, here's what we need you to do. It's literally like if you're looking at your notes that Solomon is writing a letter to God, and he's saying, Dear God, in our new temple, please do this. And he asks for seven things. God, as we move into the temple, would you do these seven things for us? As a church, as we move into our building, these are the seven things I think we want to be aware of and in pursuit of as our church takes the step that was taken in 1 Kings chapter 8. What is the step? Dear God, in our new building, would you please see us? That's the first thing that Solomon asked. God, in our new building, would you please see us? Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Solomon, I'm sure, looking at the building that was so grand at his time, he said, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, can't contain you. How much less this temple I've built? Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day to the place of which you said my name shall be there so that you'll hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Solomon said, God, we pray that you would see us and be aware of us in this place. You know, I read through the first part of this prayer and I thought, you know, that's really an interesting prayer. It's really an interesting prayer that, that somebody would pray, God, I want you to see me and be aware of me. Because as we go from Genesis up to this point, a lot of times people were running from God, trying to hide from God, rather than asking God to reveal their life in his sight. Starting with Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, going through many of the prophets, going through even Solomon's dad, David. There were a lot of times where because of shame, because of sin, because of mistakes, because of failure, because of embarrassment, that people were trying to hide spiritually. I mean, most people that I talk to, they spend their life kind of running from the view of God, hoping he didn't see what we did last night or last week so that we can still kind of be close to him. We spend our life hiding the real us from the people around us, and maybe we even think every now and then maybe God doesn't even know the real us. We spend our life disguising what's going on in our heart by putting on a mask on our face that smiles when our heart is in tears. We spend our lives running and trying to hide and disguise and mask ourselves. Yet Solomon says, God, in this place, I want you to see us. His dad, David, earlier in the Psalms would write, God, I want you to see and examine my heart. I, I just want you to know me to the core. Is that your prayer spiritually? that God would see and know everything in your life? Or do you wish and hope and pray that God would only see the good in your life and maybe the bad in your life somehow he has ignored? You know, one of my counselors has told me every human being has two basic needs. They want people to know them and love them, but one or the other. They're afraid if the people who love them really know them, they won't love them anymore. And they're afraid if the people who know them begin to love them that, that they'll try to somehow take over and control their life. So we live in a world, one world where we're known by people, but we kind of stay distant from that world because we're ashamed of who we are. And one world where we're loved by people, but we disguise that world so people will kind of like the person that they think we are. Yet Solomon says, God, I want you to see me completely. It's an uncomfortable prayer if you really think about it, unless you understand the fact that God does absolutely see all of you and love all of you. You see, God is the one who truly knows us the best 
and at the same time loves us the most. And that's what Solomon is praying. You know, most people feel distant from God because they believe he does see them. Most people, many people walk into church every Sunday kind of with their head down, hoping that everyone in the church doesn't follow their Snapchat feed or their Instagram feed or their Facebook status because we don't want our spiritual life to interfere with kind of our other life. And we're kind of afraid that God sees us. But at the same time, deep down, there's this need that we all want to know that God pays attention to us. And when we're hurting, he'll be there. And when we have a need, he'll step up. And when we need forgiveness, he'll be there. Like, like we spend our time trying to hide from God who we really are while at the same time desiring that he would know all of us and never, ever leave our side. So there's got to be a deeper thought in this prayer than God just see us. No one just says, God, see me without following up on that thought. Because for God to see us and know us totally, there's got to be some more things that follow in that. So we want to build a church. We want to be in a building where God is aware of the people in that building. But we also want to be in a building where the people in that building are aware of God. You know, the reality is seven days a week this week, 24 hours of every day, every second of every minute, God has been paying attention to you. And some of us in this room haven't thought about God since we left church last Sunday. Sunday's kind of our God day. This window is when we think about God. So I pray our church is a place where God pays attention to us, but I pray our church is a place where people learn to pay attention to God. I pray our church is a place where God sees us, but I pray that our church is a place where people see God. Because when you really get to know God, your prayer life and even your spiritual life begin to go to the next level. And that's what we see. Solomon says, pay attention to us, help us. But as soon as he said that, he says, number two, forgive us. God, I pray that in this temple, God, I pray that in our building, you will see us. But as soon as Solomon realizes that his life has been revealed to God, as soon as Solomon realizes that he is known by God, as soon as Solomon realizes that God has paid attention to him, his very next breath is, and forgive me. Look at the second half of verse 30. Solomon says, when I pray, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When you hear, forgive. Do you know that for a Christian pursuing a relationship with God, this has to be your most prayed prayer? Like literally, if somebody kept track, the most prayed prayer, when you get to heaven, if there was a list of the prayers you prayed, the most prayed prayer in a Christian's life should be this prayer, God, forgive me. And maybe you add the word again. As a matter of fact, I can, I believe I can say this pretty confidently. If you're here today, And between church last week and church today, you have not asked God to forgive you at least one time. You were not pursuing a relationship with God every day. Because as Solomon who says in Proverbs many times and in Ecclesiastes, there's no one who doesn't sin. And people who realize that God sees all of them every minute of every day, as soon as they realize God's aware of them, they become aware of their own sin and they say, God, forgive me. Now, if you this week didn't have one thought that you need to ask God to forgive you for. If you didn't have one action or reaction that you needed to ask God to forgive you for. If you didn't say one word you needed to ask God to forgive you for. Have one bad attitude that you didn't have to ask God to forgive you for. Or James says sins of omission, things you should do but you didn't do. If you read your Bible perfectly and if you prayed perfectly and if you helped every person that came into your path. I mean, if you lived a week without any need of forgiveness, I would like you to mentor me. Because I haven't figured out how to do it yet. So Christians who pursue God pray this often, God, forgive me. Sometimes, dozens of times a day, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. 
And it's interesting that when you get in the habit of learning to pray for forgiveness, it allows us to see ourselves properly rather than perfectly. So what does that mean? That means if you haven't prayed for forgiveness this week, somewhere you think you've like made it spiritually, that you've not done anything to offend or let down or fall short of God's standard. You see yourself in a perfect spiritual light. But a proper spiritual light says that we all fall short every day in so many areas. The things we do, the things we're supposed to do that we don't do, the things we know we should never do, but every now and then we do them from attitudes to emotions. There's sin that resides in us that wants to move us away from God. And you know what praying for forgiveness daily does to us? One, it gives us a big view of God. It helps us see a God that is so perfect, so holy. It helps us see a God whose standard is so high that we can never meet it. By, by giving us a big view of God, it helps us understand the size of his love and forgiveness for us even better. Secondly, praying for forgiveness daily, it gives us a broken view of ourself, which is a proper view of ourselves. We are all hopelessly sinful, broken people. Our hardwiring is wrong. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, they began to produce a line of humanity that was just born running away from God rather than running to God. If you've had a child, you didn't have to teach them how to say no. It's in their DNA. There's something rebellious towards authority in our DNA. It's just who we are. And when we begin to pray for forgiveness often, we begin to realize how seriously broken we are, which gives us a great dependence upon God. But here's what it also does. When we begin to pray for forgiveness daily, we, we have a big view of God. We have a broken view of self. But we begin to see other people who have hurt us like us. Rather than seeing them as more broken than us, We see them like us, and when people hurt us, when people let us down, when people do something inappropriately, we look at them and and we say something like this, they're broken just like I'm broken. And if it wasn't for the grace of a really big God, I'd never be forgiven. So because I have been forgiven, I'm going to offer forgiveness. You see, as we look at moving into a building that we hope develops a reputation in our community, we hope our building and our church become a place where people know that they can receive forgiveness for anything and everything, every time. However, the more we really believe that, the more we're willing to offer that to other people. You see, I'm praying that our our new building might be a place where forgiveness is sought and found by people, but it's also given by people. Because the reality is this. There's somebody in our community, I want you to listen real closely to me. There's somebody in our community who needs God's forgiveness, but they also need yours. And if you will forgive them, they might be willing then to seek out the forgiveness of God. And I understand that person might have hurt you, might have let you down, might have wronged you. I understand that person may have destructively and forever brought negative consequences on our life. But when you become a Christian who understands forgiveness, you can't help but give it. And when Solomon prayed, God, when you hear us, forgive us, he taught us to learn how to become a forgiven people so that we could be a forgiving people. And the front door of somebody in your life's relationship with Jesus might be you saying, hey, I just want you to know I've forgiven you. Because of the way Jesus has forgiven me, I've forgiven you. One of my mentors, Jimmy Dodd, who speaks often in our church, 
told me this as we were talking through a strained relationship that I had in my life many years ago. He said, Christian, the best way to understand the gospel is to look at the person that has hurt you most in life and to be willing to forgive them. Because the person who's hurt you the most, if you see them like yourself and you see you like Jesus, one, you've, you've hurt Jesus 10 times more than anyone could ever hurt you. And he always forgives you. So if you really want to know the heart of Jesus, look at the person who's let you down the most. Look at the person who's hurt you the most. Look at them through the eyes of forgiveness and then you'll know what it takes for Jesus to love you. So I pray that our church is a church that understands forgiveness and gives forgiveness. Maybe that would break something open in our community if that would happen. Thirdly, Solomon says, God, we pray that this place will be a place where people will be comforted. He asked God to comfort them. Comfort us in verses 33 and 34. He says, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they sinned against you, and when they turn their back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave their ancestors. He said, listen, when our life has been defeated, when we are hurting, when we are broken, when we are defeated, just be there with us, comfort us. In that moment, step in and help us. You know, I don't know if you know this, but we all need a little news flash as we think about our new building. You know, buildings can't comfort people, right? I mean, you know, like a building can't hug a person who's hurting. You know, a building can't pray for someone that needs prayer. The only way that the building that we're moving into will be seen as a place of comfort is if the people in the church are people who comfort people. I had two issues brought to me this week pastorally from people in our church, um, that were major needs. And neither one of them, knowing that we had a new building, asked if they could go in the building. Matter of fact, they didn't even mention the building. We have a a man in our congregation in his mid-30s who Wednesday will have a very serious high-risk surgery. And they reached out and they didn't say, hey, can we go hang out in the building for a little bit? They said, can you and some people from the church come pray? We need people, not the building. Brandon Golden, who you saw leading worship here today, his wife's 24-year-old brother yesterday morning was killed in a car accident. And when Brandon called yesterday afternoon, he didn't say, could I have a key to the building so we can, so we can go spend time in the building? He said, I need people praying. And, and Gabby's going to come to church tomorrow because her church comforts her. He didn't mean the building, he meant here. And he didn't mean the service, he meant the people. Look at what the Apostle Paul said about comfort in a church in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. He said, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Paul said, everything we've gone through in life where Jesus has come and he's comforted us is just training for us to comfort others. That's all it is. To say it another way, you could say this. God won't waste a single hurt in your life if you will give it to him and then be willing to share it with others. You know, when you think about your greatest healing at our church, if if you were to look at, for those of you who have been here a long time or a short time, if you would say, man, the greatest thing in my life that has been healed here is this, guess what? That's your ministry. Your hurt 
that's been comforted becomes your future ministry. Paul said God comforts people so that after they've been comforted, they'll know how to comfort the next crew. Solomon says, God, if there's any building that represents you, let it be a building where people find comfort. How does that happen? Not from the right temperature, not from the right chairs, not from the right classrooms, from the right people who just care and who will comfort people. So I pray our church will be a a, a church of comfort and I pray that every single one of us that has ever gone through hurt in our past will not see that hurt wasted, but will see that, heart, that hurt turned into ministry as we use it in the life of another person. Then Solomon asked that God would provide for them. This is one of the greatest elements of this prayer. And you can't even see what I'm talking about yet until we read the text and break it down. But this prayer is much bigger than a prayer for provision. Look at 1 Kings eight thirty-five through 36. Solomon says, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land that you gave your people as an inheritance. Listen, this is bigger than a prayer for provision. This is a prayer for grace. Solomon is not just asking for God to provide for them. He's asking for grace that is in itself provision. You say, what do you mean by that? Listen to this prayer another way. Maybe you missed it as I read it in 1 Kings 8, 35. Solomon was basically saying this. Hear this prayer through the lens of your life. When my poor decisions and direction in life create a need in or around me, please meet those needs and teach me how to live differently moving forward. See, it's one thing to pray that God will provide for you. It's another thing to be lacking because of some mistake that you have made, some sin you have committed, some massive miscalculation that was your fault. It's one thing to say, God, provide for me. It's another thing to go to God and say, you provided for me, and I blew it the first time, and I'm sorry, but will you provide for me again? This is not just a prayer of provision. It's a prayer of grace. This is a prayer to a very big God from a broken person that says, when I look at all the needs in my life, most of them have been created by me. Poor choices, poor decisions, poor relationships. I can point to something in my past that if I would have changed, I wouldn't have been here. But God, even though my sin and and my chaotic life, even though my decisions have put me in this place of need, would you still meet that need? Would you help me not to do that anymore? It's not just a different prayer. That's a better prayer. It's a more honest prayer. And it reveals, once again, a bigger God from a broken person. You know, one of the hardest things to do is not to come to God, but to come back to God. I mean, as a Christian, one of the most difficult things to do is to know the right way to live your life and somewhere to get off track and then to step back in because those first few steps are really hard. You know the hardest prayer to pray? It's the prayer when you come back to God knowing that you chose to walk away from God and trying to figure out how to ask him to forgive you while admitting, hey, I've done all this, but would you take me back anyway? On December 1st of last year, I guess it would be December 1 of 2015, I was away on a planning week in a hotel, planning all the 2016 ministry for our church uh, when I realized that my heart had gotten disconnected from God, at least in prayer. And here's kind of how the story went. A year before that, we got ready to embark on this kind of building project. 
And my heart was so overwhelmed and I was so afraid that we couldn't do it that I committed. I said, I'm going to pray every day for 40 days. Before I even asked my elders if we should build a building, I'm going to pray every day for 40 days because without God's presence and power, we're not going to make it. And I prayed every day for 40 days. And then as that 40 days lapsed and I met with our elders and they said, let's go, I thought I need to keep praying. So I committed to another 40-day season of prayer before I told the people in our congregation and began to ask them. And as that went well, then we had kind of our eight weeks for people to make pledges and commitments. And I was just so overwhelmed. I thought, man, I can't stop praying now because I'm just overwhelmed in my spirit. So I thought, I'm going to pray through Commitment Sunday. It was 120 straight days of prayer on my knees, just begging that God would help us. And then on Commitment Sunday, our pledges blew out of the water what we had planned. Our first fruits offering blew out of the water what had planned. And I got so comfortable that I relaxed. And the next morning, I didn't pray because my need had been met. And then the next morning, I don't know if I was too tired or what, but that next morning, I didn't pray. And next thing I know, I look up, and from March 1st to December 1st, I didn't have a single date written in my prayer journal that I had prayed. And I began to plan ministry for 2016, and I got real overwhelmed again. And I thought, I need to ask God to help me. But it was uncomfortable. I was embarrassed. I remember I got down on my knees at that couch that was in our hotel room, and I kind of started like this, God, I'm really embarrassed to be back after so much time away. I don't know what I was thinking, but I need your help again. I'm really sorry for taking nine months off, but I'm back now and I need your help again. Some of you have refused to kind of re-engage spiritually because you're not quite sure how you disengaged. And some of the consequences of disengaging have been marriage is falling apart and jobs falling apart. Like life is just kind of falling apart and you want to re-engage, but you're just too ashamed to go back to God and say, wow, I really blew it. Can you help me again? But Solomon said, God, when we really blow it and we ask you to help us again, would you still provide for us? That's not just a great prayer to know, but that's a great grace to experience. And I love that. And I hope our church is a place of grace where people can experience that. Solomon also prayed, number five, that the temple would reach outsiders. He was aware of people who were far from God. And he said, God, let people in this place who don't know you begin to know you. Look at verses 41 through 43. Solomon said, as for the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people Israel, but's come from a distant land because of your name, for they're going to hear about your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. It's interesting that Solomon said, I know kind of you've given this to us for us, but God, other people are going to come and let this be for them too. You know, a building that represents our God is a building where people who don't know him yet are welcome. But not every church and not every congregation is comfortable with that. I say every week at our church that there are people here who are not yet Christians and we're glad that you're here. You know why I say that? Because every week at church, there are people who are not Christians, and we're glad that they're here. Like, if you can't take a spiritual journey in church, where are you going to take it? Like, if you have to become a Christian before you start going to church, how's that going to work for anybody? So Solomon says, we're going to build a temple, but we want people far from God to come to this temple and begin to experience who God is, and that's what we want for our church. 
It's why we do little things so people far from God might feel comfortable coming to church like NFL kickoff Sunday. On NFL kickoff Sunday, we'll dress in our favorite team apparel, September 11th, and our band that morning will start with kind of a rock mashup of songs they play at Arrowhead Stadium. You say, well, wait a minute, doesn't that offend God to hear those songs? Listen, is God a football fan? Yes. Um, You know, (laughs) has God ever watched a game at Arrowhead Stadium? Yes. You know, it's like, does that music offend God? No. I mean, does it glorify Him? Probably not, but in, in that moment... We're trying to be a church for outsiders to draw them in. And if our people don't understand that and allow that, we'll never never have people from the outside connect. That's why we do Sundays like Blue Sunday for the beginning of the royal season. We have Slugger here because there are people who do not love Jesus that do love Slugger. And they'll come to church if he's here. You say, "You'll, you'll use a big cat mascot to bring somebody to Jesus? Paul said, I'll become all things to all men that I might reach one, even if I have to dress up in a cat costume, which they haven't let me. I would if they would let me wear the slugger outfit. I would wear that. They haven't yet. Haven't asked. Maybe I should. Um, But we will do do things at our church that are different from the normal church. Why? Because we want to reach outsiders. Because we believe there are people who have heard about God but don't know Him yet, and they need to experience Him in a church. We said we want our building to be a launch pad, not a landing strip. The building is not really for our congregation. We're going to enjoy it, but this congregation really doesn't need a building. We found Jesus here. I mean, the padded chairs will be nice, right? Walls in the nursery, that's going to be an upgrade. Not setting up and tearing down. I mean, there are certainly positives for us, but we don't need the building to know who Jesus is. We already know who he is, but others might need that building so we said, God, let this be a launch pad where people will go and tell people who Jesus is and bring them back. I had a pastor very early in my ministry say, Christian, if you target the hurting, you'll always draw a crowd. Why do outsiders need Jesus? Because they're hurting. Look at the statistics of people, how lonely they are, the substance abuse, the financial stress, the divorce rates. Look at the lives of people who are hurting and they need Jesus, so we need to be a church for outsiders. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are spiritual. That's not what it says. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He does not qualify that with whether you're a Christian or not a Christian yet. So maybe you're a Christian today and you're, you've come in weary. It's August. Those of us have been sending kids back to school. August is hard. August is wearying. Jesus says, come to me, I'll help you. Those of you who walked in today burdened, massively burdened. You know, when you really get to know people, all you have to do is stand by the door shaking hands and you can usually read people and gauge the level of burden that they carry. You can't see it sitting on your shoulders, but you can see it sitting in your eyes. You're burdened today? Bring that to Jesus. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, bring your tired, weary, burdened soul to Jesus and watch what he will do. So we want to be a church for outsiders. But then Solomon asked God something that I love. I read this verse and I thought, that's awesome. Solomon asked that God would fight for their causes. Solomon said, God, be a part of our cause. Basically, help us fulfill the mission that you've given us. Look at verses 44 through 45. Solomon says, when your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you've chosen and the temple I've built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. Solomon said, when people are out trying to live for you, 
and they ask for help, uphold their cause. Do you know that if your cause is a righteous cause, then you should ask God to help you? And if our cause is a righteous cause, then we should ask God to help us. Meaning if our cause lines up with the mission of Scripture, then we should ask God to help us in that cause without even feeling ashamed of that. Solomon says, help us in our mission to become who you've called us to become. If you're a school teacher, but the underlying kind of mission of your life is is that people might see Jesus and you should pray every day. God, today, help my cause. Help a student to ask me about Jesus. Ask me about church. Ask me to pray for him. God, fight for my cause of helping people know who Jesus is. If you're a businessman or a businesswoman, but the underlying thought and theme of your business is that you want people through your business to interact with Christians in a way that positively impacts them. Ask God to help you do that. Maybe you're a, 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 you've been blessed to be able to make great wealth, but deep down you've always wanted to use that to bless the world. Ask God to bless you to make more so you can pour into his cause. There's nothing wrong with asking God to fight for your cause if your cause is a righteous cause. When you look at our mission statement, we have tried to join in the cause of the church of the Bible. We exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians that make a difference in the world. So we look at that and we say, God, we know this is your will according to Scripture. So help us as we do this. We can't do it on our own. Help us. And when you dig even more into our mission statement, to our core beliefs. say, what are the core beliefs? Those are things that our church will die for. Our core beliefs are the things that, you know, if our church moves into a building and one day has 10 buildings, but these things don't happen, we have failed. These are what we kind of measure success based on. We don't look at attendance and say things are going good. We don't look at offering and say things are going good. We look at our core beliefs and say if these things are going good, then regardless of the attendance and offering, we are on track. What are our core beliefs? Spiritual growth. Because we believe every person has a next step. So we ask God, develop people, grow people, build people spiritually at our church. We believe it's a righteous cause. One of our core beliefs is community impact. Because we believe God brought us here for our community, not just to be here in a community. We don't want to be another church that people drive by. They don't know its name or its cause or its mission. But we want to impact people who will never come to the church. Hungry people, people in need, people who need marriage counseling, people who need finance counseling. We want to be a church that exists for the good of our community. We want to have global impact. Because God's church exists to serve the world. So we'll go to Kenya in November. We just got back from Guatemala. We'll be in Israel again in a couple years. We're going to go all over the world for Jesus because that's what he's called us to do. We want to be a church of generosity because we believe we can't outgive God. It's why as we've begun our budgeting process for 2017, we've looked at the 12% that our church has been given away and how blessed we are. And we've said in 2017, let's aim for 15% given away. And let's just see if every year we can give a little more because up to this point, we've not outgiven God. We went from 10 to 12, God blessed us more. Let's go to 15 and let's just see how much ministry we can give away as we take it in because we believe in generosity. It's one of our core beliefs. And we believe in sharing Jesus because we believe if people know Jesus, they show Jesus. It's just the reality of who their life is. So we look at these five things and we say, if these things are happening... If people are growing spiritually, if our community is being impacted, if we're engaged in global missions, if we're giving generously, if we're sharing Jesus, we are, we, are, we are becoming who God wants us to become. And that's happening at our church. But it's interesting how Solomon ends his prayer because Solomon says six things. God, do this for us. See us. Forgive us. 
Comfort us, provide for us. Lord, let outsiders become a part of what we're doing. Lord, fight for us. But then Solomon says this, if you will do all these things for us, then his final prayer request is, Lord, help us do this for you. You see, Solomon said, God, fight for our cause. But then he said, number seven, his final prayer was, Lord, fully commit us to your cause. God, we've asked you to do a lot of things for us, but God, would you help us be willing to do this one thing for you? Look at how he ends his prayer in verses 59 through 61. He says, May these words of mine, which I've prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other, and may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and to obey his commands at this time. You know, when I look at what I hope most for our church, it's for the people who are in this room, for the people who have been a part of this cause since the very, very beginning. And my prayer is that we as a congregation will fully commit to being this church for God in this community. Because our building is going to be known by the commitment of our people. No one is going to know our building by its location, by its design, by its service times. You know what our people are going to know Journey by? They're going to know Journey by the one person they know who goes to Journey. And they're going to think that's what that church stands for. That's who that church is. So you represent the church of God in your world. And people will know the commitment of our church based on your spiritual commitment and how much you appear to love Jesus and be for these things that we've talked about. So I'm going to ask our church the first six weeks that we're in our building from next week through September 18th, which is our five-year anniversary, I'm going to ask you, if possible, not to miss a single week. For this reason, hundreds of people are going to come see our church. And it will be their interaction with our people, not the building that will help them know whether or not they want to be there. So we're asking that all of our people would be there those first six Sundays. We're asking if you have Chiefs tickets to come to the early service, 8.30, and maybe tailgate a little less that first time so that you can be there. We're asking if your kids have soccer games at 8 a.m. that you would come to the 11.30 service, but just make plans. Maybe this is the first time ever where you send your son or your daughter with their teammates and say, hey, we're not going to make this early Sunday game go. We're going to go to church, but you go play. Or you tell your coach, hey, my, my son or daughter, they can't play this week because our church has just moved into a new building. We just want to be there to welcome the community. You know why they're going to come? Some are going to come because they're hurting and they hope maybe this church can help them. Many will come because they're invited. A lot will come because they're nosy, right? How many neighbors do you see walking through the spec houses in the neighborhood? It's right, yeah, your neighbor starts building the house and it's like, let's go see what's going on. I mean, some people just want to see inside. Just we're created that way. We'll duck when see the headlights coming up, you know, just in case. Not that I've ever personally done that. But people are curious, maybe not nosy, curious. I wonder what the inside of that building looks like. People are going to come in their interaction with our people not our programs and not our facility, we'll let them know who Jesus is. So Solomon prayed that the people would be all in and I'm praying that you will be all in because Journey Church International is a people. It's not a building. It's a people. It's a group of people on mission together. It's not a building. However, we've been given a building to minister to people in. So if we can understand what God has given to us and why, we can use it properly. As you saw on the screen before I 
started our Bible study time this morning. I believe the only reason we've been blessed with a building is so that we can bless people with the ministry of our church in that building. And we're moving into a great season of ministry, but it's going to take all of God's people being all in to maximize who God wants us to become. After nearly five years and more than 250 Sundays in this place, it's time to finally say goodbye. And I thought, man, what better way to end our final service at Summit Lakes Middle School than the way Solomon began his first service in that transition time into the temple. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet if you would. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And it says that Solomon stood before the temple, standing between portable and permanent. And it says Solomon stood and he lifted his arms towards the heaven and he prayed. 